You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Welcome to this newest episode of the Transformative Podcast. My name is Leonid Motz and I am assisting the Research Center for the History of Transformations in its social media and communications efforts. This week, I will be talking to Dr. Jeremy Bradley about the transformation of minority language use and study in Russia. Dr. Jeremy Bradley is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Vienna's Department of Finno-Ugric Studies. He's a linguist with a background in Finno-Ugric Studies and Computer Science and completed his PhD in Finno-Ugric Linguistics at the University of Vienna in 2016. He spent three and a half years at LMU in Munich before returning to Vienna in 2018, where he teaches and researches, mostly focusing on Mari, Mansi and Aerial linguistics. I'm glad you're here with us today, Jeremy. Thank you for the invitation. So Jeremy, what is the linguistic diversity of Russia in general? How many minoritarian languages are there and what is their political status both historically and after the end of the Soviet Union? So it's difficult to put an exact number to this because it's very hard to differentiate between dialects and languages. But irrespective of how you count them, we have dozens of minoritized communities across Russia who speak genealogically highly diverse languages, many of which are related to languages such as Finnish, Estonian and Hungarian. Other ones are related to Turkish and other Turkic languages. And other minoritized languages are not related to any languages spoken outside of Russia. Could you walk us through the colonial expansion of Russia seen through the sort of lens of linguistic policy? Have there been waves of Russification and repressions starting with the Bolsheviks or are there precedents from Tsarist Russia? It's fascinating for me how in the Western perspective, there is very little awareness for the linguistic, cultural and religious diversity of Russia. But of course, a country the size of Russia doesn't fall from the sky within these borders as one homogenous entity. Basically, the colonial expansion of Russia or into what today is Russia happened in a comparable time frame as the colonial expansion into the Americas, that only at the end of the Middle Ages or after the end of the Middle Ages was there the expansion of speakers of East Slavic languages into what now has become Russia. The communities that were there before, many of these communities still exist today. They survived under the colonial mantle of the Russian Empire, the Tsarist Empire. And they have survived throughout all different iterations of Russia that have existed ever since. It is very difficult to say if Russia politically has been good or bad for the minorities, as is always the case, because we have conflicting tendencies throughout the centuries. Basically, you could abstract it into sort of a wave model when there have been times that have been comparatively good for the minorities and the minority languages where there has been active support for them also coming from the authorities. And then there have been times where the trend has been going in the opposite direction. And this is not limited to one political iteration of Russia. This is not limited to the Soviet Union. It's not limited to Tsarist Russia. It's not limited to the Russian Federation. In all of these structures, there have been good times and there have been bad times. So as a follow-up, when do minoritarian languages gain political status in Russia? 
Uh, is this starting with the Karinizatsa period, so after the Bolsheviks, or are there again precedents? Well, the early 20th century was in general a good period for the minoritized languages of Russia, roughly speaking. But it didn't start with the Bolshevik Revolution of 1907. It started already during and after the failed revolution of 1905. So throughout the centuries, for minorities in Russia, they had the advantage before the Russification of the late 19th century that basically the Russian state wanted to levy taxes off them, but mostly left them alone. So that there was, as long as people pay taxes, who cares what languages they speak, what religion they follow, or whatnot. The late 19th century, we had a period of intense Russification and Christianization. And then after the failed revolution of 1905, something happened that often happens after failed revolutions. So the revolution was put down, but the people are still angry and you'd have to try to placate them. The Tsarist regime gave various groupings within Russia more rights afterwards. Also, it allowed for the formation of labor unions and whatnot. And we know how that ended up for the Tsarist regime long term. But it also gave, for the first time, a space for minority languages to realize themselves in print, for example, that there will start being print publications in minority languages starting in the aftermath of the 1905 revolution. After the Bolshevik revolution, a subset of the minority languages of Russia were given an official position in newly established constituents of the Soviet state that became with time the so-called titular republics, various ethnic groups of Russia that you would have a group of people like the Tatars that would now have their own administrative unit in which their language, in this case Tatar, was co-official with Russia. There are debates about what the motivation was behind this. In my opinion, several are in play. Some people like to believe that it was just the humanitarian orientation of the Bolsheviks, that they wanted to be inclusionistic, etc. I find this aspect somewhat naive, to be perfectly honest. The second aspect is that in the early Soviet state, there was a strong belief in a global communist revolution. And if you are believing in the global communist revolution, and if you are seeing yourself as the vanguard of this process, the last thing you want to do is to identify yourself as a Russian ethnostate, because that is limiting your horizon in a way. And the third one is that you could also argue that the Bolsheviks had the same understanding that the Lutherans had that it is easier to convey an ideology to a people if you do it in a language that they speak and understand. But this then led to the colonization period, the rudification period in which a lot of minority languages of Russia gained official status and also were a lot of place names were given new names in these languages, like the capital of the Mariel Republic, where Mari is spoken. Back in the day, it was called Tsaivokokshaisk, like the, the Tsarist city on the river Kokshaga. After the Bolshevik Revolution, it became Krasna Kokshaisk, the red city on the Kokshaga, the river where it is. And then by in the colonization period, it became Yotkar Ola, the red city. And we have cities called the red city all over the former Soviet Union, red city in different languages. If we return to a more synchronic perspective, obviously Russification and assimilation are threats to Russia's linguistic diversity. It's interesting to look at the communities themselves and sort of observe how do communities cope with these factors, especially when thinking about pull and push factors. So do people shift to Russian because of repression or as a means of social mobility? At the end of the day, it is a combination of different factors that are on the one hand 
incentivizing a more Russophone identity to allow for greater social mobility. Like if you want to go to where where the jobs are, Moscow, St. Petersburg, Mari or Tatar are not going to be much use to you there. So there is this factor. But there is also just an abstract desire to avoid the stigmatization that has occurred in previous generations. And I mean, this is a complicated thing that often apologists for the Russian structures will say, well, people are deciding themselves not to pass on their languages. There is no law, but structural violence, structural pressure is way more complicated than there just being a law saying thou shalt not speak more with thine children or something like that. These processes are always everywhere, way more complicated than that. We know this from different countries. We know this from the United States, for example, we know that you can have racist legislation that does not once mention race, for example. You were talking about Mari, and I'm wondering what are the challenges in preserving this language on the ground? One massive challenge is that there is this conception throughout Russia that Russian is the language of intercultural communication. And you experience this if you are a foreigner in Russia and you don't speak Russian properly or you don't speak it at all or like you speak, even if you speak it with an accent, it's almost like there's something a bit wrong with you, that it's just not part of the conventional experiences nowadays that somebody doesn't speak Russian. This is a very recent thing, by the way. 30 years ago, you still had Maoris that did not speak Russian. There is this stereotype that Russian is the language of internationalism, transculturalism, modernity, so to say. Whereas the minority languages, and this can be languages like Mari with hundreds of thousands of speakers, can also be languages like Mansi with a few hundred speakers at most. We don't know for sure. These languages often become more tied to the family setting and also to traditional ways of living. A term I have heard in reference to this is the musealization of languages, that if a language becomes tied to ways of life that are not necessarily compatible with modernity, like the pre-industrial agriculture or something like that, if you treat your language like a museum exhibit, it's going to become a museum exhibit. And this is a problem faced by many languages that they are in Russia. The shift to being the language of an urban community is difficult because throughout the former Soviet Union, you have this tendency that cities are mostly Russophone and the countryside is where the various minority languages are spoken. Well, if the countryside is suffering economically and people are moving away from there, the languages themselves, the communities will suffer too. And the goal would be to create urban cultures that use these languages. But that is easier said than done. I mean, you study these languages. And uh, I think there's this elephant in the room, which is the Russian war in Ukraine. How does the impossibility to directly reach out to the speakers' communities now after the beginning of the war, because sort of research in Russia is very limited, how does this impossibility reflect on the study of Mari and Mansi? Well, this is a very difficult matter because the Maoris, for example, are being disproportionately drafted into the invasion of Ukraine. And there are statistics also showing that among those drafted, like in the Republic of Mariel, disproportionately ethnic Maoris are being drafted. And among those who are drafted, the ethnic Maoris are disproportionately being sent into the meat grinder. So they are the ones that are being sacrificed in the trenches and whatnot, whereas ethnic Russians, if they are drafted in the first place, get to have comparatively cushy positions far away from the front lines managing logistics and matters like this. This puts the Maoris and other minorities of Russia under acute pressure. And a lot of young men, 
in these communities have found ways to escape mobilization by going to live in the forest, for example, where mobilization EFRA agents can't find them. Because if you manage to stay just uh, inaccessible to the state, how are they going to send you to die in the trenches in Ukraine? And often, like the women will help the men by bringing the food out into the wherever in the forest they are staying, etc. And if these are the challenges faced by the community, it is hard to feel ethical approaching people and say, hey, I have some questions about participle structures. Could you answer a few questions about how you use this or that participle in this or that context or whatnot? So there is this side of it. It's also like from the European side, currently not easy to get funding to work on minority languages of Russia for various reasons. I, as an American citizen, just I would not, could not travel to Russia to carry out field research. So what people are doing right now is those who can do elicitations with speakers of these communities over the internet, over Zoom, which is still possible, but what is not possible is you can't pay people. There's a limit to how much information you want to extract from people if you cannot pay them. But what we are doing now is that we are working with speakers of these languages in diaspora, that there are speakers of especially the comparatively large minority languages of Russia. We have access to dozens of speakers of these languages in places like Hungary and Estonia, where we can reach people and we can also pay people without any problems. So we are doing our field research within the European Union, which is not going to work indefinitely, but it does work right now. Generally speaking, what must be achieved for successful revitalization and what are strategies, costs and obstacles and also, who in terms of collective or individual actors drives this process? Because I'm wondering if there is any structural interest in the Russian Federation to preserve and revitalize the minoritized languages. Well, this is very difficult. And when looking at these matters, I like to look at success stories that there have been where languages have been in positions comparable to the minority languages of Russia and have comparatively bounced back. And then the question is, can the circumstances under which this happened be duplicated in a Russian context? Well, right now, we don't have any influence on what is happening. So it's all very theoretical. It's all the domain of dreams. But let's engage in dreams. One example that is frequently brought up as a successful example of revitalization is Welsh in the United Kingdom. It remains a minoritized language in not completely stable footing, but it's doing a lot better than one might have thought a few generations ago. What happened there? We had a crystallization of national movement in a way that really prioritized also the education of children in Welsh. We had various programs that ensured that even if one generation didn't learn the language properly, that the next generation learns it from speakers of elder generations, that we don't see it as the end of everything if there's one generation of speakers that doesn't know language properly. And this we have in a lot of cases of minority languages that have bounced back, that we have a so-called lost generation where you will have the 40-somethings tendentially speak a language less well than the 20-somethings. That's a real success story if that happens. This, we also have this with Inarisami in Finland, for example. So that was one side of the coin of the Welsh story. The activists managed to re-emphasize the importance of the language for the community itself. But there was also a shift on the other side of it, that the community in general, also the Anglophone community, became less negative about 
Welsh and other minority languages of Great Britain. This is not to say that there is no stigmatization. There's a lot of it still. But there is also discourse within the Anglophone community that uh, the minority languages of Great Britain are part of the valuable cultural heritage of the island and that there is some support, not as much as I wish there was, but there is some support for the preservation and revitalization of Welsh and other minority languages. Well, how do we bring this about in Russia? Because right now we do not have that there at all. And I do not know. I do not have any suggestions. I do not have any influence on this. But the optimistic view was that once this catastrophe in Ukraine ends, and it is going to have to end in some shape or form eventually, the optimistic in the sky way of looking at things is that maybe if Russia has to reinvent itself after the fact, maybe it can reinvent itself in a more pluralistic manner where it sees its wealth of cultural, ethnic, linguistic diversity as something valuable, worth preserving, worth encouraging, worth revitalizing. We're nowhere there now. I do not know how to get there, but that would be the dream. Thank you, Jeremy Bradley. You have been listening to the transformative podcast produced by Redset in Vienna. Yeah,